You are listening to Written on Water, a podcast about death, life, and all the layers in between. I believe that by learning how to die well, we learn how to live and love completely. So listen and learn. So today I have the pleasure of chatting with Jana DeCristofaro, Community Response Program Coordinator at the Dougie Center in Portland, Oregon. I've listened to her podcast, Grief Out Loud, several times to listen to the stories of young grief come to life. So welcome, Jana. Thanks for having me, Michelle. So I thought it'd be a great start with our, of our conversation if you could tell us about the Dougie Center, describe your role, and sort of tell us how you came into this work. Sure. Uh, The Dougie Center was the first program in the country, or actually in the world, to start offering peer support groups for kids and teens who had had a parent or a sibling die. Prior to the Dougie Center starting in 1982, the general approach to kids who were grieving, this is not true across the board, but in general was, let's not talk to them about it, they're not going to understand, let's just pack everything up and move on. And the Dougie Center started because our founder, Bev Chapel had an experience of watching a boy named Dougie Turno in the hospital. He was uh, dealing with an inoperable brain tumor. And she had a chance to observe him connecting with the other kids that were in the hospital as well. And those kids were asking each other questions that they couldn't ask their doctors and they couldn't ask their parents or their caregivers. They were asking their, each other things like, hey, uh, I'm dying. Are you dying? My parents haven't figured it out yet. And I don't think the doctors have yet either, but I know I'm not going to live much longer. What do you want to do with your last time here? Right. And so Bev, Bev really got inspired to think like, you know, kids do great when they get to talk with, to one another when they're going through really intense times. So from that experience, she started the Dougie Center and we began with a group of four kiddos in a basement. And from that, we've grown to have three locations here in the Portland area, and we have trained over 500 programs around the world that are using our model of bringing kids together, teens together, adults together who've all experienced the death and giving them an opportunity to talk with one another or not talk and express themselves in other more creative ways through art and dress up and play and big energy. I think that's pretty amazing what you guys are doing over there. So thank you for that. You know, and I I believe I've told you, you know, the whole reason I'm doing this is because my brother had a brain tumor, much like Dougie. Um, He was lucky to live a few years longer. But as I I saw adults dealing with grief, and they had a hard enough time as it was. And I actually found out about the Dougie Center from a close, close friend in Portland whose child was diagnosed with uh, rhabdosarcoma, which is a rare childhood cancer. And this, this young one has an older brother and older sister. And I just kept thinking, oh my gosh, you know, adults have a hard enough time with this. How are children dealing with this? So it made me wonder, you know, do you think children grieve differently than adults or is it similar, you know, because they're just so, you know, they're emotionally less developed in many ways, but so smart in so many ways. What do you think? Is there a difference, you know? Yeah, it's one of my favorite questions to answer because I, I wish it had a real simple like yes or no. 
Um, I mean, I think the general idea is that yes, children grieve differently, but I sometimes wonder, are they actually grieving differently or are they just expressing that grief in a different way and doing it in, um, in ways that maybe aren't as easy for adults to understand or translate. Mm -hmm. So, you know, stereotypically we think of grief, we think of people being sad and withdrawn and maybe talking or not talking about it or, um, a very emotional experience. And I think kids are really great models for us about how grief affects us on so many levels. Mm -hmm. and, and I think it does affect us as adults on all of these levels. I just don't know if we have as easy access to connecting with that. So kids show us that grief affects them really physically and that they may have stomach aches and headaches and other sort of somatic expressions of grief. Uh, it affects them cognitively, where maybe they're having a really hard time concentrating at school or finishing homework or being able to um, track what people are saying to them. Right. All things that happen to us as adults as well. It just It's so apparent in kids. Um, the other thing I think is probably maybe the most true for kids. I would hate to say anything is most true or not true. But for kids, you're going to see them express their grief pretty... Um, physically and through their play and in different creative ways of trying to make sense of what has happened mm -hmm. because they oftentimes don't have, you know, the cognitive capacity to truly understand what death means mm -hmm. or what it means for their life. I would argue adults go through the same process of like, what has happened? I can't believe this has happened. But for kids, they may never have experienced the death before. So this is their really first time trying to figure out like, what does that actually mean? So you'll see it come through in their play and in their um, physical activity. And do you think when it comes to children, is honesty the best policy or is it depending on age? Do you, do you tell a child everything that is happening and be completely honest or are there certain things you protect them from? What's your opinion on that? Yeah, you know, I've joked over the years that when it comes to grief, my answer is usually maybe and it depends. <laughs> but the, the one thing that I think uh, that myself and, and the Dougie Center holds true to is that giving kids honest information about what has happened or is going to be happening if someone in their life is dealing with an advanced serious illness is almost 100% the great, the right option. Mm. What you say, how you say it, how much detail you give, all that's going to be dependent on a child's developmental level, um, the adult's capacity for communicating that with the kids, what the kids want to know. Mm -hmm. But I've, I've heard a lot of kids in my 16 years at the Dougie Center say, I'm super mad that they didn't tell me. I'm super mad they waited 10 minutes to tell me. But I've yet to have a kid or a teen say to me, I'm really glad they didn't tell me the truth. Huh. I'm really glad they kept that information from me. No one's ever said that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, yeah. it, you know, and there's so many things that go into that. But for kids, they're super perceptive. Right. So say somebody in their family is dealing with an illness or, or a family member has died, they're going to know something's going on. You know, adults might try to pretend like nothing's happened, but kids are going to pick up on it. And kids, especially younger kids, they're pretty sensitive to changes in the dynamic in the family, changes in people's moods. And because of their age and their developmental level, they may oftentimes turn that on themselves. Did I do something wrong? Am I in trouble? Right. And so they start making up stories in their head to explain what they're feeling and sensing. And oftentimes those stories can be more anxiety producing 
than just having the honest information. I mean, they're really, they're so much smarter and intuitive than we give them credit for in reality. So definitely. And, you know, I always say to adults, if when uh, a big national tragedy occurs, if you just heard a quick little snippet and then all of the um, information sources went blank Mm -hmm. and you couldn't get any more information, Mm -hmm. how terrifying that would be. And that's what it can be like for a kiddo if they can tell something's going on, but they don't know what it is. Right. So, you know, we recommend starting with some simple information and keeping it pretty basic and then asking kids, do you have any questions? Is there more that you want to know? So you don't have to tell them every little detail, but you let their questions guide what else you might say. That makes complete sense. Very, very logical, really. (laughs) The only part of grief that's logical. Yeah, right. Seriously. Um, And I, I know there's so many different kinds of losses, whether it's a sudden death from an accident, violence or suicide, or a very slow death, like in my brother's case, via a long-term illness, such as cancer, ALS, you you name it. Do you find that the grieving with children is different depending on the loss or you know, are the emotions and questions generally the same that they're upset and they're angry and sad? Um, and, and what are the common questions you get from kids around death? That's another one of those great questions. And I, I love reflecting on it and thinking about it and wondering how my answer maybe has changed over the last decade and a half. Uh, I go back to something one of the kids at the Dougie Center said, which is when it comes to suicide, because that's the death that they were dealing with. The only thing that's different about a suicide death is that there's so many more ways for other people to be insensitive about it. And that really, to me, encapsulates the whole answer in that, yes, there's particular aspects of dealing with a death from a different type of loss um, or a different type of illness. But a lot of times it's dependent on how other people are responding to us. So, you know, a death like an overdose death or suicide or homicide, many of those come with a lot of stigma. And so people don't want to talk about it or they have a lot of judgments about the person and then the family that they came from. So there can be added layers of grief and complexity that families are dealing with of sorting through other people's judgments. I can imagine um, kid- kiddos get repercussions from school if it comes to something like suicide or overdose, you know, like families talk to their children and kids make assumptions and that's got to be also very difficult, you know. Definitely. And And then on the other side of it is someone who has someone who dies from a long-term illness, there can be an assumption that that is somehow better or easier, um, that you had time to say goodbye, uh, you had time to adjust to it. And for a lot of kids, you know, watching their person physically deteriorate over time with all of the anxiety that came with test results and scans and things like that, that, that can create a lot of challenge for people, a lot of anxiety. And then they can judge themselves. Like, why am I having such a hard time? My death was just a illness death. So I think, you know, anytime we approach a family is to ask them, like, what's it been like for you? Right. Um, And then in that, kids who have had an illness death, you know, they may have a lot of questions and concerns about how does the body work? How does medicine work? What are the doctors doing? Kids who have had someone die of suicide may have a lot of questions about mental health and um, other things that may have been going on in that person's life child has had a homicide death or some other death that's really public, they're going to have added layers of dealing with the media and perhaps uh, a criminal trial. So yes, there's different aspects. And I think the grief in its essence oftentimes is the same. Yeah. And I mean, really, I didn't think even think about that with the press and and a violent death or 
And I assume with the suicide, there's probably also guilt feelings. Again, thinking, did I do something? Didn't they love me enough to stay alive? You know, there's got to be so much emotional baggage behind that, you know? Yeah. And again, those are also just interesting is every time I think about it, I'm like, oh, but there was that kid who (laughs) their parent died of an illness and they thought, you know, it's my dad didn't love me enough to take better care of himself, Mm. even though that there wasn't a direct correlation. But in that kid's mind, they were trying to make sense of that or, you know, it's unfair. Why did this happen to me? And so every time we try to find a a pattern, there's always those exceptions. Got it. Wow. I mean, it's it's fascinating and difficult either way, no matter how it happens. I mean, my parents died from a car accident and my brother from a long-term illness, cancer, and it, it was horrible either way. Absolutely. It was nothing of, it was no one's fault and life happens. Um, and it's difficult no matter what. And the, the poor little ones, you know, they're just trying to grasp with some really heavy issues at such a young age. So I just did an episode with a funeral director and it made me think when it comes to children, do you think it's wise to include them in estate planning, uh, memorial services, just talking about funerals and, and especially in their case, I would think custody would be important. Like what will happen to them once their parents go, you know, do you think it's wise to include them in that conversation at a young age? It's such an interesting thing to think about because they can be very different, right? So if somebody dies or if someone is in the process of dying, there may be conversations happening about a funeral or memorial or celebration of life or a home going. Um, And in that, I think it's really important to one, ask children if they want to be included in that planning. And if so, how, how do they want to be included? Not that they're making the final decisions. I think, you know, the big picture decisions the adults can take charge of that, but what are the ways that we can include kids and invite them to maybe come up with a ritual or something important to them, something that symbolizes the person. Uh, So there's that aspect of it. Then there's the aspect of preparing kids for what would happen if somebody were to die. And I think there's a lot of safety and reassurance for kids to know that there is a plan for who will take care of them if something were hmm. to happen. Okay. That uh, and that, that's particularly for kids who have had already had someone die. There can be a lot of fear and concern about the other family members and some kids for a lot of kids, just having that reassurance of like, you know, I'm taking really good care of myself. I'm planning to live for a very long time. If something were to happen, here's the plan. What do you think about that? Yeah. Like, are, are you okay with living with auntie? so-and-so or would you rather live with uncle you know, right john or, or giving them sort of options as to what might happen yeah, if those more of a yeah. yeah if those options are available i mean i think coming to a kid and saying who do you want to live with yeah i know <laughs> <If I'd> <laughs> like, you might say like here are the people we've thought about yeah and here there's two choices which of these choices would work better for you and and letting kids know that it's okay that they might have some mixed feelings about that and that they might feel guilty for picking one person over the other. So maybe um, preemptively imagining what are some of the challenging emotions that might come up for a kiddo and, and thinking through a decision like that. That makes sense. That makes sense. So um, I actually ask a question to every single guest that comes on my show because, you know, we're dealing with end of life issues and grief and Uh, I'm just so fascinated. You know, what does your vision of the afterlife look like? Ah, 
Wow. That was a hard one. That's a really hard <laughs> one, Michelle. <laughs> and I think it's, uh, it sort of made me laugh to myself that after working in this field for so many years, I don't have a clear vision for the afterlife. I do have a really clear curiosity, though. One of the things I, I most wonder about is what level of consciousness and connection to I, our own identity as we know ourselves now in this life, uh-huh. like what part of that comes with us and what part doesn't. And I don't know if that makes a lot of sense, but you know, no, that it does. Absolutely. Because I, you know, I've said in my previous shows, I, I kind of wonder if my dogs were my parents reincarnated. Mm. You know? um, so it makes me wondering if karmic recycling does happen, you know, um, or are there spirits around us that sort of guide us or does none of that exist? You know, it makes me, makes me wonder about all of that. Yeah. Like, will I know that I'm the me of me now where right. I remember the me of me before. And yeah. And there's definitely parts of that of like, you know, there's some things you carry with you your whole life and thought patterns and behavior patterns. And I'm like, whew, I hope I get a break from those at some point. <laughs> <laughs> so I wouldn't mind leaving a bit of that behind. Well, you're doing some good work now. So I assume <laughs> you're going to get a, an upgrade. <laughs> so, um, and the last question I have actually I, again, ask everybody, um, and I think especially in this line of work, you've probably, as I have, learned so very much about life and death and, you know, meaning, you know, what is the meaning of it all, really? Um, so what do you think is the most important piece of wisdom you've learned thus far that you can share with our listeners? As we get to our hardest question of the episode. Um <laughs> You know, can't make it easy on you, you know? No. <laughs> I mean, there's so many things. There's so many, so many aspects. You know, I think about how important this simple act of acknowledgement is for folks who are grieving. Just having their grief acknowledged, mm-hmm. having an awareness that they're grieving, uh, not avoiding the topic. That's a super powerful lesson I've had and I take into my relationships, hopefully somewhat successfully. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think about how... Um, how kids and teens and adults as well benefit so much from having someone who can be comfortable with the discomfort of sitting with someone in grief and how powerful it is for them to be able to talk with somebody who isn't going to freak out about their story and can listen and, and can modulate kind of their own response to it. There's a lot of power in that. Um, But I think most recently the lesson I've been thinking the most about is how no matter how much we might read or how much grief experience we've had at this point, I feel like there's absolutely no way to fully predict or prepare for each individual grief experience that, you know, how I felt in the past about people in my life dying is in no way going to predict how exactly I'm going to feel when another person in my life dies. And and that the work around reading about it and trying to be immersed in it, it, it doesn't in any way shield us from the grief that we will experience. Oh, not at all. Because uh, you just don't really know the depth, you know, the depth that it's going to reach you at, you know. Yeah. Which and is, how hard it's going to hit. Absolutely. Which is terrifying for me, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I do this work, I should be able to know exactly how I'm going to feel so I can somehow prevent my, it's almost like if I know how I'm going to feel, then I could possibly prevent that feeling. And I think coming to that realization that there's no preventing the feeling. Yeah, you know, and I actually, I actually try to reason myself 
in that same way um, with my brother's death, because I read this amazing book by Sherwin Newland, How to Die. Um, he's fantastically empathetic doctor. And I read this book because it's all about um, how the body shuts down with the five most prevalent deaths, you know, and, you know, for my brother, it was the first time I'd really seen a slow death, you know, a death from a long-term illness. And in his last few days, I just didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what to do. And I'd read, you know, Shep's book. And I was like, oh, that's what his body was doing. It was shutting down in this way. And this is why he was in a coma. And this is why he got pneumonia. You know, I was trying to reason it out mm. and to figure out how I could have lessened my grief. <laughs> But it made sense. I was like, gosh, I wish I could have read this book before because it might have helped me. But really, I mean, either way, it's a loss. It doesn't, it almost doesn't matter how it happened in a way, you know? Yeah. I mean, your, your story makes me think about how, while there might be no way to lessen the grief or the feelings associated with the loss, there are ways that information can help uh, lessen or dampen some of the ruminating questions that can happen. And I think that's particularly true for children where if they, you know, they hear that dad died of a a disease and they don't quite understand what that disease means. Mm. And then they think, well, when people get sick, like if they hear dad died because he got sick, well, people get colds and flus. So am I going to die? Like all this anxiety can come up Yeah, yeah, and having honest information that can clear up that anxiety. It doesn't lessen the feelings of loss about dad no longer being in that child's life. Right. It can decrease all these extraneous things that create more challenge and suffering. That makes complete sense. You know, I mean, it's a fine line with children, it seems, just to be honest with them, but also reassure them, you know, in so many ways that, well, depending on death, as we talked about, that this is a natural occurrence and death death is going to happen to everybody and it's a real thing that we all can ensure will happen. So yeah, it's a toughie. (laughs) Absolutely. The toughest conversation that most adults will have with their children, but also so needed and necessary. And I'm grateful every time an adult is open to communicating clearly with their kiddo about what's going on. Right. Right. Well, thank you so much. I, I think we had a great discussion and you've definitely cleared up some questions I had around childhood grieving. And I know the Dougie Center um, website has lots of resources, right? Absolutely. Yeah. We have a series of tip sheets uh, that are available for parents, caregivers, school personnel. We also have a series of DVDs, guidebooks, workbooks, and the podcast that you mentioned, Grief Out Loud, has a variety of episodes with people talking about their own grief experiences and some how-to episodes with other professionals in the grief world. And I have to say that Grief Out Loud, although it's directed toward, towards childhood grief, it makes sense for adults too, I have to say. <laughs> I mean, a lot yeah. of it's true for adults. And if you are an adult grieving, it, it almost might make sense to listen to some of these episodes because it just talks about really managing symptoms and you know, I, I just had an episode with an Episcopal priest and she, we really talked about, you know, what not to say to someone like this happens for a reason and it's God's plan. And, you know, she called it trite banalities, Mm. (laughs) you know, and I think that's the same for kids too. Like, I think there are a lot of similarities. So I would recommend listening to that podcast um, and going to the Dougie center 
website to check out resources because it's not far off, you know? Yeah. And I would say a lot of our episodes are actually geared directly towards adults too. We started with the idea of it being a children's grief, but it's just expanded so much. So. No, it's great. And uh, congratulations on all that you've done. I think it's awesome work and keep it up. You know, and thank you, Michelle, for adding another podcast to the grief mix. Yeah, there'll be more. (laughs) (laughs) I'm Michelle Mathai, and you've been listening to Written on Water. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review this podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Until soon. Mm -hmm.